You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners uh, are also well and we've got a great interview for them today. So I think you and I shouldn't uh, blather on too much, should we? No, we're not going to. We actually have the first interview with um, Audrey Zieverman, the CEO of AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, since she announced her surprise departure um, earlier this month. In fact, you know, it was earlier this month, latest last month, just a few weeks ago. Anyway, look, without further ado, we'll just hop straight into the interview with Audrey Zieverman. Uh, Audrey Zieverman, thank you very much for coming back to the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you for having me. Look, there is much to talk about as usual, but I guess we should start off with the big announcement of the last couple of weeks, which was your decision to return to the US at the end of the year to join Google X, or just X as their PR person insists on calling it. Uh, I'm just, look, this created, what, a lot of disappointment, I think, in the industry and a lot of questions about why. I'm just wondering if you can just explain your rationale for the decision and um, might you rethink it if uh, Donald Trump wins the presidential poll? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, look, I, you know, this was a really difficult uh, decision for, to make, for me to make. I, I love AEMO as an organization, I, and uh, Australia has become my second home. I even have an Australian husband now. So this wasn't uh, just something, oh, let, let, me, let me just do something else. But uh, X is is very much focused on the type of issue uh, that I've been uh, really keen on for the the last uh, probably five to seven years, uh, which is really understanding that we have to start thinking about how does the digital economy enter into the energy sector and the importance of decisional tools that we're going to need and capabilities and information transparency and availability to be able to support this transition to uh, low carbon resources. And and so what I think about it, and this is something that I you know, we've been talking about for since I've been here, is the investments in solar, the investments in wind, and now the investments in, in batteries are, are really driving down the costs of a lot of these resources to the extent that, as we've said in, in AEMO, they've become competitive and therefore have become primary resources on the grid. But grid operators need the tools. It's almost like, here's this wonderful gold mine, but we're not going to give you the tools to get into it, to actually manage these resources and help incorporate them so that they're truly integrated into the system. I was talking to a colleague at uh, California ISO today, and he said, you know, the problem is, is that we don't have to just adapt the resources in, or adapt this, this system to allow for these resources. We really need to integrate them in. And, and that's the challenge, and it's the challenge that we certainly have seen in Australia. So the opportunity to, to work with X and to, which, you know, this is, is around how to make this stuff work, how to make these, they take this very difficult issue and become up with the solutions was something yeah. that I, I just couldn't say no to. And, um, and what I recognize is the need to combine what the tech sector understands, what the energy sector understands to come up with really, really good solutions. Might this be interpreted in a way that you think you can achieve more at X than you can um, staying at AEMO in terms of the energy transition? Well, X is interested in doing things that are, are worldwide. And, and you know, one of my passions coming out of the time that I spent in Africa after university was energy access and understanding energy poverty and being able to solve these issues. And so the ability to think about things on a broad global scale is certainly something difficult to do at AEMO, but but um, is necessary. So I do think that mm. for me, given what I'm interested in, which is how to create an affordable energy environment that's also clean and secure, 
and do it for both developing countries as well as established countries mm -hmm. is um, it was too big an opportunity for me to say, ah, now I'll take a pass. So, one one more question for me before I hand over to David. Then, just on the future then of AEMA, and I guess you probably don't um, have any influence over who might be chosen. But I wonder if you could sort of share your views as to who might be required. I mean, I guess you could po possibly argue that the job is not complete; it's probably half done. Does the does AEMA need, in your position, a technocrat, uh, an engineer, a people person, a, a politician, or a, a change agent, or all of the above? Well, I think that the one thing I could say is that we've developed over the last several years a really strong strategy at AEMO and a very much a can-do culture about let's let's solve these issues, let's focus on making things work, and uh, and and that is something that I I know that that the board is keen to continue. So this is not a change in strategy; it's a continuation of the strategy, and I, and I have. Within a been able with in AEMO over the last several years build a very strong team of uh, excellent executives. So I I do think that w while a lot of the work, frankly, that that we started around market reform, the changes, and how do how do we position ourselves better, is well on its way, and so will and will continue. Um, I do think that the the board recognizes, and I, I think everyone recognizes, is that given the challenges associated uh, with this transition, it's going to be um, a great opportunity for someone to come in and take it to the next level. So I, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm hopeful I did do is, uh, rec is give people recognition of how important the institution is, and that the board, uh, I think, will have excellent candidates to choose from, and I'm confident that whoever succeeds me will be um, a, a terrific success because they're they're walking into an institution that I think is extremely capable and motivated to do the right thing. Uh, hi, Audrey, and thanks again for me for coming on the on the podcast. And I guess I'm surprised to hear that you th you think that there's. X offers more opportunities because I, I, I read recently that you said Australia was a postcard from the future and uh, is one of the most advanced opportunities, most advanced uh, renewable penetration with behind the meter sort of offers more sort of um, practical uh, management of, of the, the actual challenges than, than, than I imagine will happen at Google X. But hey, I don't know about that. I guess my question is, what what do you I mean at the moment uh, AMO has been uh, sort of had some pressure about over its capital expenditure budget, which is quite large. It's had Cambridge. It's had the um, um, energy, the large energy generators, sort of attacking it in a way, uh, along with the Networks Association. Um, what what do you see as the main challenges for AEMO uh, for the next uh, chief executive? What 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 has to be done still? Well, first of all, I just want to, to your initial comment, I don't think it's a comparator. Operating an organization like AEMO uh, is a fantastic opportunity, and I wasn't looking to leave at all. Uh, the ability to develop uh, new technologies to support institutions like AEMO worldwide is also an opportunity, and particularly for me, to do that for countries where people do not have access to power today is is a compelling uh, and a, you know a, a compelling opportunity to really solve big issues. And so I, I didn't see it as an either or. It just was two very different opportunities. Um, and I'm always grateful. Amos is is a fantastic. Was a you know, running an organization running Amo has been terrific. And uh, I certainly wouldn't I you know I wouldn't say this was a leaving it's just a, something that came up that I, I just want I feel very very passionate about so um, but I think in terms of the concerns so we when we were when I arrived at AMO um, there was a, a huge amount of uh, recognition significant recognition that the that we had underinvested in some of our computing tools 
and that what we had done is every time there was a new market, we developed a new bespoke system. And as the market became more and more complex, we we had a couple of things happening. Some of our systems were at the end of their useful life and licensing life. And the other thing is we were doing things like five-minute settlements that were exceedingly more complex. And the ability to do that in where you had to open up every system and they didn't necessarily talk to each other and on a platform basis made everything much more expensive. And we saw that expense going up as we saw more and more complexity added into the system. So like pretty much every institution around Australia, we recognized we needed to move to a digital platform to deal with the amount of data that we have to deal with, the um, timing of data, the putting in new systems, having better internet, and then also driving efficiencies internally to AEMO. So we, we, we did start, we did institute a program to move to a digital platform, which is already yielding results for our ability to do the um, energy made easy back uh, support system where you can essentially get 12 months of uh, data in two minutes was enabled by our uh, investment in technology. And as a result of that, we've already saved consumers significant amount of numbers dollars because they can, they can switch easily. So moving to a digital system so that we, we can be more efficient, I don't think it is, an increase, it's actually a way forward. It's an investment to reduce our costs. I also think that you know we've had to add on uh, planning capability, forecasting capability. So all of these are additional costs, plus uh, 30 out of the last 33 rule changes required AEMO to make changes into its system. Plus we have a significantly more reporting responsibilities. So all of that put a pressure on staff uh, to, and so we had to look at how to adjust for that. That being said, we're, we're also simultaneously doing looking at our own internal capabilities and how can we be more efficient because we recognize we're a cost on the system and we want to be as efficient as possible. But when you think about the, the fact that we're helping guide how to make investment decisions that are you know in the billions and operating a, a market that clears in the billions, and we our overall cost in total is about four dollars and fifty cents a year. It's not, you know, it's we could even reduce our costs in half, and it's not going to change much on the consumer bill. That being said, we want to be as efficient as possible, but also recognizing that you can't run a system that we're developing in Australia on tools that were built developed before the internet. So we have. Uh, you could. Changes. I agree with that. I, I agree. I agree with that completely, I might say, and, and you could make the same comment about the coal, coal field generators as far as I can see. You can't build a 21st century economy on a 20th century power system, but uh, uh, and, and I, I fully support, I think what you say about AIMO is going to be true for every generator, every retailer out there. Everyone's going to be investing heavily in their systems and these you know, networks are going to have to invest heavily in their costs as well with a decline in revenue and decline in volume. Uh, base. So this, these are industry challenges that AEMO is just representing. Uh, I, I, before I hand back to Giles, I wanted to ask one more question, I guess, and this is more of an, an, an out, uh, outgoing question. Firstly, there's the governance of uh, AEMO itself with this sort of mixed shareholder government ownership. And I just wondered whether, how, whether you think that's a good model. Uh, or could be improved. And secondly, the overall governance in the in the in the NEM. Uh, there's lots of governance, it seems to be, but not much accountability. Like uh, uh, you know, everyone seems to report to everyone else, and 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 uh, it just seems uh, to me overall uh, not like you would run a company or a command economy. I just, but, but does it work, or can it be improved? Do you have some observations? David, I, I always enjoy your questions. <laughs> um, they're, they're, you're really insightful in, in, in terms of the things that, that really get to the heart of what we need to do. So look, I, I think there are a number of things. One is, I believe, you know, in, in terms of a lot of these things, the structural issues um, can be always improved in almost anything you do. But, but it, it sort of that becomes almost like moving deck chairs on the Titanic. You really got to think about well, how, what's the approach that we want to take, and and in that way, then the structure doesn't really matter. So I think that the larger things for us are, are this: one is 
having an entity like IEMO, a system operator, and you know, in most economies where there's liberalized markets, that you have independent system operators is really important because we are like the air traffic controller or the exchange and being independent of the entities that use it makes it sure that make it allows us to make sure that we're doing things as efficiently as possible when we settle the market and that we have that transparency. The challenge is really that I found here and I don't and I I um I'm, we've we've formed a a group called the Global Power System Transformation Group. And it's it's actually, it's a collaborative that's made up of five of the, uh, six of the power system operators around the world who have more than 50% renewables in their mix. And so we're all sort of looking at these um, issues around how do we integrate these resources better and research entities like CSIRO, et cetera, so that we can work together and solve these problems. And each of us are, are feeling very uneasy about the fact that the, we're, we're a, operating in a world where the change is happening very quickly, you know, and, and you know this is happening in Australia. Now, the fact is, is that we continue to break records in terms of minimal demand because consumers are making choices around putting rooftop solar, which is fantastic, but we need to make it work. And so the concern is not so much the structure, is how do we adapt in an, into an environment where things are happening under Moore's law, you know, and for Ohm's law around the speed of change. And, uh, mm. but the regulatory and market environment is still stuck in another age of really slow moving change. And so that's where I think the tension has been is where AEMO is seeing things occurring quickly and having to intervene and we need to think about how do we move from a reactive state in energy to a proactive stage where we're, we're building ahead of the change as opposed to trying to catch up all the time. And I think that's, that's a real tension that regardless of the structure, when you have incumbents who have settled expectations and newbies are coming in and we're not ready for them and we're kind of in the middle. And when I talk to my, my colleagues or other system operators, we're all in a position where we feel like the arrows in the front and the arrows in the back are equaling out. We just need to keep them equal <laughs> so we don't fall over. And that's that's really what's happening and where where you have this kind of uh, very quick change. And um, speaking of that change, I guess um, there's no state that's experiencing that change as much as South Australia. Just last Sunday, I think it reached 100% uh, penetration of solar. Um, a lot of that rooftop solar and some balance of uh, utility scholar of, of their local demand um, for the first time. That created a huge amount of interest. I think it's been the most read story we've published on our website over the last month. People are very excited about that and that transition. When you see that from AEMO, what do you see and what's your reaction? You're thinking, oh, heck, well, now what do we do? Um, or are you happy to see that? But um, clearly there's some issues that you need to address at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you might have seen one of my colleagues at AEMO, Mike Davidson, who does our short-term forecasting, tweeted out the uh, the curve last Saturday. I mean, from last weekend, and it is an excitement at AEMO because they recognize these are challenges, and and it is a group that really is motivated by solving issues and addressing challenges. The um, the fact of the matter is that is, and I, I would say Western Australia is there too, and uh, the rest of the country is not far off is that we are seeing this very quick change in the environment. The numbers that I got uh, are that people are adding on, on approximately 2,400 homes a month are adding rooftop solar. And uh, at by that stage, we expect another 36,000 homes in South Australia by next year, which means we can be back to zero demand easily within a year. And that's that's sort of a, the very quick change. The ex the excitement trepidation is, do we have the rules and tools in place to be able to manage these resources so that they could provide an advantage to the system? And then secondarily, we do need to get on with it around the types of capabilities that allows us to shift demand. And you know, electric vehicles are probably going to be right after this, so that we can take a, uh, advantage of these resources at the edge of the system. And, and and provide people the right incentives and, and ease of capability 
so we can use them as an advantage to not only keep the system secure and reliable, but keep prices affordable, not just to the owners of rooftop solar, but their neighbors who may not be able to put it on their roof or choose not to, but still uh, you want to make sure that you're you're delivering energy in the most effective way possible. So I think the excitement is it's possible, as we said in the renewable integration study yesterday, we think technically we can get there so long as we have the right tools. And a lot of these tools are going to be the capability to use to machine to machine capability. Uh, how do we use advanced uh, artificial intelligence? And then the work that we're doing on simulation to get make sure that uh, from Naimo's perspective, we, we can start doing the what ifs much more quickly and be able to give our operators the right kind of tools to manage it. So it's all mm. of the above, plus the AMC, as you know, announced today, its rules, its approach towards relooking at system strength and getting that kind of work done so that the system is ready for these changes. Well, how, how low does that, has the demand actually got? I was listening to a webinar um, earlier on today, actually, and there was talk about it um, and what instantaneous point it actually got as low as 62 megawatts. That's operational demand in South Australia, which seems incredibly low. And the question was raised and, and, and it was sort of suggested that rooftop solar and the proliferation of rooftop solar is making the grid inherently more unstable. I mean, is that really the case or does the AEMO have the tools to be able to deal with that amount of uh, rooftop solar? I mean, it's already introduced new standards and um, protocols insisting on higher inverter standards, protocols for being able to switch off, and there'll be other things taken into account as well, um, particularly with the uh, interconnector into Victoria and, and, and other things. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we do, we are concerned about the issues of uh, under-frequency load shedding when we have uh, minimal demand issues and the ability for the system to respond when, when the demand is that low. So the question then becomes, is there an operating envelope that you might want to keep the demand in and therefore essentially reward people for the ability to shift demand away from these afternoon or into the afternoon periods so that you have demand in the afternoon, <clears throat> including adding storage, of course, and then in the evening when the sun sets, be able to then use that stored energy to keep prices low and to help moderate uh, the ramp where in fact, you know, when the sun sets and everything comes back, it's very difficult. So one of the challenges that we see in terms of solar, which is a bit different than wind, is and particularly rooftop solar, I see this very pronounced in, in Western Australia, is when the cloud cover comes over, you know, and it comes over in a local area, you'll see the load drop precipitously and come back. And so it's hard for the other for the generators to chase it. So is the, there's a way that we can modulate it by um, through optimization, virtual power plants, storage, those types of things. We'll get better use, and we'll also be able to prolong the period of time that we're able to use the rooftop solar to meet demand. So I think it, anything you can do, it's almost like super peaks, right? You, you want the system to be productive, so you don't want really deep belly ducks, and you don't want super peaks. You, you kind of want it in that nice sweet spot where you can manage it. And and that means a combination of resources to, to get us there. I think there is going to be a fantastic role for software. I've thought that for ages and also that inverters could be made uh, much smarter, whether they're just grid forming or, or connected into the broader yeah. network. I'm, I'm sure there's terrific opportunities for that. But I, I wanted to ask again, uh, uh, another question that's dear to my heart, especially around transmission, and uh, but it, it's more general as well as, you know, whether markets, uh, in your opinion, we're all market people, uh, love markets, but uh, there's also a sort of argument for central planning or planning, let's call it central planning, when, when you're going through these major transformations. And do we have the balance for that right here in, in, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a, it's a really... Um... I think that 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 is the next set of questions. So we we was on a set of calls today, and we were talking about this. <clears throat> I think the you know the the it, this is we do need more planning. So I think the integrated system plan was a great step forward relative to taking a look at you know what what are we going to do when the coal retires. I mean, maybe you know if people are going to define central planning as 
the uh, way we did it in the you know, last century where you had vertically integrated utilities who were planning to say, well, demand is increasing, usage is increasing, we need to add more resources, where's the best place, what do we want to put in, and all the decision making is in the, you know, kind of by a vertically integrated utility. No, we shouldn't go back to that. Uh, but on the other hand, when you have uncertainty <clears throat> like we have, which is about what's the timing of coal retirement and where, because there's no rules around that. When you have the uncertainty about what's coming in and where and when, because there's no direct rules around that. And when you know that a lot of the technologies that are coming in are very different than the technologies that are are exiting and and that it takes you know, three, four times longer to build transmission than it does to build a major plant, you realize you have to do some level of planning and prospective activity. Otherwise, you get into some of the problems like we saw in Victoria, where you're reacting and, and it just is commercially very challenging and creates uncertainty, which, of course, makes capital either scarce or more expensive, which then drives up prices. So anything we can do to inject certainty um, and give people then the market to have a better, as better information and the ability to uh, act in a timely way, I think is going to be essential. And I also think, you know, just just from you know uh, the way I look at it is, this is more than just simply saying, oh, we're we're replacing an old fossil plant with a new fossil plant. We're we're really changing the technology base. And so we, we do recognize that, and therefore we have a very different infrastructure we have to build out, and we want to do it most as cost-effectively as we can because, one, it you know, creates job advantages, it reduces costs, and it reduces capital risk, all of which benefits consumers. The other thing that I just think is so, you know, I can't help but continue to stress on this, this is so different because historically we always invested in the a power sector to respond to increasing demand. This is a generational change where we're investing in the power sector to replace one form of technology with another form of technology simply because of aging. And and so that means more than anything, you'd want to keep their costs down as low as possible because you don't have that benefit of increased demand as a way of modifying the price impacts of you know taking out old technology and putting in new. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think that the the lack of demand growth and volume growth is 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 a constraint on the whole industry on capital investment. And I think myself that nowhere is that more evident in the, when when it's all said and done than down at the network level, the street level, where and and Australia's uh, system of dividing up monopoly business from market facing business. I mean, I don't, no one wants to go back to the days of a state-owned monopoly, but uh, the ring fencing requirements, I think, are arguably more of a barrier than a help in, in, uh, at the moment. But that's, that's my opinion. Before I hand back to Giles, I just, I mean, Emo's come in for a lot of criticism in the past couple of years uh, about system strength in various areas, whether it's Victoria or Queensland and, and you know, MLFs. Uh, but I, I suppose particularly the generators that I'm most sympathetic to are the ones that are sort of connected under one set of rules and then had the rules changed on them afterwards. I just wondered if you wanted to make a, a, a comment about that. Yeah, I mean, we've been working very closely with the generators uh, in terms of how to, how, to, how to make this sort of the, how do we move forward on these various issues? And it's not, and, and the question and the challenges, of course, and then I wouldn't say that, they connected under one set of rules and the rules change, but clearly we have a problem is, is that what we find is, is that we generators come in and because we have uh, free act, you know, anybody can get onto the system so long as the systems can, can uh, hand it, handle it. The challenge is as you add more and more of these resources on, the system becomes more and more vulnerable, which means everyone's interests gets affected, both old and new. And so that's why I think we, we the mistake uh, we made, and I don't think it's an emo mistake, is is that we just didn't anticipate the rapid and growth, you know, amount of change. I mean, when, <clears throat> when I think about it, you know, in the last three years, we had a thousand percent increase in the output of grid scale 
solar farms from 6 to 52 and a 72% increase in wind farms and, you know, and, and connected, um, a, you know, um, I don't know how many gigawatts more, but we, we are looking at, um, in, in terms of gigawatt production, ex, expect an increase of 20 to, from um, 28 and a half gigawatts or to 36 based on our ISP scenario. So, and we have, you know, very long queues, people wanting to connect. And all of that suggests to me that one of the things we just need to know to do differently, which is why we want to move on the ISP and <clears throat> the reses, is get the system built so that we move away from thinking about you know power system to meet reliability needs, which is the RIT T format. You know, you projected a demand growth, so you want to build transmission to meet the demand growth to recognize that we need a power system that has the hosting capability to integrate the level of renewables we project to have to have, and build it at the locations that are, are best for the renewables so that it reduces the cost. And I think that's, well, that gets back to the earlier question. The structural change to me is not so, I mean, there always improved governance. It's actually the challenge EMO finds it's found itself in is that it's, having to deal with the fact that we didn't make the regulatory shift, that we need to rethink why we do things. And, and so the, I think the better way to think about this is around hosting capability. We talk you know, hosting capability of the distribution system to deal, to uh, accommodate rooftop solar and EVs and the hosting capability of the grid to uh, make the best use of renewables, and knowing that as an outcome of that, what you're doing is you're shifting from an energy system that was uh, driven by where fuel was your sort of largest single cost to recognizing you're moving to a system where there's effectively free electrons in the sense that you're not paying for the fuel, but you need transmission to make it work. And I think we just didn't, we, we just, we're talking about it, but maybe we didn't articulate it the right way, and we didn't really recognize the problem for what it was. It was a really fundamental shift in the needs. I agree with that. I'll hand back to Charles. Do you think, Audrey, then that um, the other energy institutions and the various state political bodies and the governments also agree with that assessment? Are they on board to make that regulatory change that's required and to actually rethink the grid? Because it does seem to be still um, something of a piecemeal approach. I do think that the work of the Energy Security Board is really trying to get to that articulation and a vision of, of what we're building to. And the various components of the reform work really, if you you know, if you look at them, it's you know, it's talking about a resource adequacy mechanism. How do we get investment certainty, reses, how do we integrate DER, how do we pay for these complementary essential services so that there's people invest? So I think it's all there. I, but sometimes it takes a little bit to really recognize that the problem statement maybe needs to be restated in a different way so people understand why the rules that you've applied historically, which were to serve one problem, which was to make sure you weren't over-investing in transmission because you were projecting a demand increase that never materialized, to say, no, no, now you're investing in transmission because you know those generators want to go out into rural New South Wales and you need to build a renewable energy zone to make sure that the system can accommodate it. And, and I think we're getting there, but you know, probably uh, it's better to have these kind of conversations and start stating, well, what is the issue we're solving now? You mentioned the ISP and, um, and obviously the renewable energy zones has been a central part of that. You're already working on the next version of the ISP. What's gonna be the focus on that? I understand that's actually gonna be entertaining um, even uh, possibly more do more work around the 1.5 degree um, um, target. Um, could you sort of elaborate on that? And uh, I, I presume the, the the pace of the transition is not going to get any slower. Well, I think we'll continue to consult on the scenarios like we've had, and and it may be through the discussions. Uh, there's more emphasis on well, what will it take? But I, the other piece that I would expect to see more in this next integrated system plan is the integration of um, hydrogen. You know, how are we going to manage that? Natural gas, you know, what is, how does that 
work? What are what do we need to do for that? And then and then more and more, I think, on the role of uh, de, uh, distributed resources and how we accommodate that on the grid. So I would see expect to see more sophistication around those issues, more around storage, because and how that's going to work. So I think we need to start looking at that. So the whole concept of sector coupling and its implications as we electrify more of the uh, economy requires us to think about, well, then what's the power sector going to need to do in order to, to make sure that it doesn't become a barrier to that kind of economic growth? I think I think demand growth is going to be uh, getting some demand growth in you know via electric vehicles and uh, and I don't know electrification of industrial processes more broadly uh, is 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 a big issue. Go ahead. My my final question, because you've been very generous with your time, Audrey, is, uh, and uh, is my final question is is just when you mentioned your international group that you're a part of, is there any country that you would say is is doing it? Uh, better than Australia, that where we or region that we that we should uh, look to and actually, uh, you know, learn from to avoid some of the mistakes that that uh, that we've all made, uh, uh, perhaps unavoidably. Um, I I think that well, when I talk to the power system operators, you know, they're all we're all sort of uh, looking at these issues. I do think that one of the things that uh, I'm keen to understand is is that. You know, in in other regions, sort of these issues around how to manage system security, inertia, things like that, particularly in Europe, you see more more discussion going probably because there are more entities like AEMO. There's a lot of them are all over Europe and they get to talk together. But um, also, I just think because the, the whole issue of energy transition is depoliticized in Europe to a certain respect. Right. So it's it's not a it's not a political issue that you know, regardless of who's in who's in charge, they have uh, their where they want to go in terms of the emission reduction. So it, it creates a certainty and it creates the uh, more in terms of the how versus the weather. And I think what I'm hoping, because the economy's changed, economics of renewables have changed so much that we now have really, if you listen to the industry, um, cross the Rubicon and everyone's largely recognizing the system's changing and we need to accommodate it. Now the focus needs to be on how do you do that most efficiently versus whether you're going to go there. One final question from me then, Audrey. Um, it sounds then like um, the politi politicization of the um, transition um, would appear to be the most frustrating thing um, for you as, a, um, as the chief of AEMO. Yeah, well, what it is is, is that I... It's not a. It's what it is to me is, is that as we have I tried to say throughout um, while I've been here, you know, we're, we deal. AEMA deals in the facts and reality. The reality for us is the power system's changing. People are making investments in renewables and rooftop solar, and we as a system operator have to operate the system that has that change occurring, and make sure that the rules are such and the market is such that we can best accommodate that, so we don't have to intervene. And that's where we want to go. We want the markets to work with the change in technology. And so certainly, um, sometimes, you know, I, I do get concerned that when I say that people interpret that as a political or a policy aspiration versus a reality that we just need to deal with. And what would be, you know, where I always would prefer the conversation to be is, how do we do this most cost effectively for consumers? Because that's what we should be doing versus debate, you know, having to worry about um, am I stepping in some sort of political landmine that people are going to think I'm siding with one side or the other. And that's and I think I've, I've done that largely successfully. I know that there are always people who would like to say I didn't, but you know, that has been my my focus, which is what's best for consumers here and how do we make this work? Audrey, thank you very much for your time. David, I don't know whether you've got any final, final comments, but um, we do pre appreciate you joining the um, the podcast once again. David? Well, Audrey, I, I, would, I, 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 I would just say that uh, you've led AEMO reasonably successfully, I would argue, and transformed it through uh, arguably one of the most exciting times to be working in the electricity industry. 
I think there's another 20 or 30 years in front of the world in doing this transformation and a few more exciting uh, industries that the, to think about. Uh, and so uh, we're sorry to see you go. Well, I'm hoping I'm not going. I mean, one of the attractions, frankly, of going to X is that uh, this is an opportunity really knowing, taking what I, I know are the opportunities here to, to you know, be able to come back to Australia in a couple of years and say, um, you know, this is a that, that to be able to continue to be part of the of the of the framework in Australia. So this is it's been a terrific a terrific time to be here, and I'm um, I'm not saying goodbye. I refuse to. So I'll be back. And on that note, we'll end and end, end the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Audrey Zivman, the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator, who will be returning to the US at the end of the year. David, um, look, some interesting points in, in, in that discussion. Look, a fascinating discussion, um, quite well controlled. I think she will be missed because, um, as, as you sort of pointed out to me, I think, earlier today, you know, there is a feeling that the job is only half done, and I guess so much depends on who follows and who has chosen to succeed her? Well, there's all change at the top. So we had, if you like, the Malcolm Turnbull team, which I guess you could say was Audrey Zyberman and um, John Pierce and, and uh, Kerry Schott. Uh, and then as it's, as it's turned out, uh, uh, um, uh, it was initially Paula Conboy at the AER. Uh, now we're actually getting change at the AEMC, uh, change uh, at the AER, uh, well that's changed, and we're going to get a new uh, CEO of AEMO at a time when AEMO is under attack. Uh, Kerry Schott has announced that she wants to not stay there forever, but she's not going immediately either, which and thank goodness for that. Um, so, uh, and people do matter. I mean, you can say that uh, football teams do very well no matter who the coach is, but my experience is the people at the top do matter. Uh, I think in, in very difficult circumstances, and it, it was difficult and is difficult, Audrey's done a pretty good job overall and certainly been a breath of fresh air to, um, uh, in, in helping get the, uh, us Australia thinking about the future. So it really does come down to who the next person is. Mm. I did ask Audrey um, who she uh, thought the next person um, should be, an engineer, a technocrat, a people person, a politician or a change agent. Um, she didn't really answer that question. Um, what do you think? Who do you think we need? Uh, look, I'm not going to make any uh, guesses. Um, there's but only what one sort of person? What, what, what sort of person, though? A, a change agent, an engineer, a technocrat? A superman. <laughs> <laughs> or super person. Super person. Uh, look, you, you, you actually you need a crafty person to be chief executive. Uh, you need someone with the appropriate uh, vision of the future but not necessarily to put all their cards on the table about how to get there. And their way of working with the uh, politicians, I mean, the AEMO is controlled, uh, owned both by shareholders, uh, the, the generators, but also by the uh, uh, government. So you need to be working with those stakeholders, get them to see your point of view and give you, give them, have them give you the licence to get on with the job. And you do that by presenting them with a good plan, uh, and 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 making it work. Not all at once. You don't tell them. You don't tell them the full plan up front. You only tell them a little bit, and then you just make it happy. Well, that's what happened. That's just that's one way of doing it. Mm, mm. In that interview, she mentioned something which caught us by surprise because I don't think we'd actually seen the announcement beforehand, which was the Australian Energy Market Commission talking about new system strength issues. And look, system strength has been one of the key. Uh, issues in the market over the last year or two has prevented many a wind and solar farm from either being connected or even uh, producing as much as they would like. Uh, I think you've had a you've had a look at the front page. Um, we we should probably be sort of provide more insight, but can you tell us roughly what it says? Well, Giles, I can. What I would say at opening remark is that the AMC, all of a sudden, uh, since John Pierce, don't ask me, seems to have suddenly come up with a framework <laughs> that looks a lot more reasonable. I don't know. Pass the Valium, would you? Uh, 
but this uh, this uh, release has had a stronger future for renewables and a stronger national electricity market. Now, often these releases mean the exact opposite. I might say by way of humour that uh, in the stock market, Giles, when companies uh, uh, had an earnings torpedo, that is they put out a negative profit release, an earnings downgrade that was going to make their share price go down, that normally there would be like two pages of incredibly positive news about everything and buried in a sentence or paragraph at the bottom of it was the bingo line where they said, you know, profit's going to be down 20% or whatever it is. So you, you, you can't just read the headlines in these releases, but what it appears to be saying is that generators are going to have to do a little bit more, arguably through the inverters, uh, to make sure they can st- keep stable operation even in lower system strength conditions and uh, uh, even in uh, large voltage phase changes. Uh, but that essentially, uh, the as far as I can work it out, the transmission system is going to be responsible for the overall le- uh, level of system strength in the grid, uh, which is what I think transmission operators want. Well, one wonders why um, why aren't they already? Yes, and 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 this goes to the other sort of rule change that uh, I might mention the AMC's c- considering that I talked about before, and that is the ring fencing between networks and. Uh, uh, retailers rules, the ring fencing rules as, it, as they might apply to community batteries. Now, I think community batteries are, are, are have huge opportunities. I might be wrong about that, uh, but if we get it right, I think community batteries can be a, a, an absolutely key component of this decentralization of the grid, uh, which is where I think it's, it's going to, uh, and providing the um, regulatory framework to enable that to happen for the networks to be happy. Um, is important. So, and getting system strength so that it's responsibility of transmit. Why wasn't it already? Who knows is the short yes. answer to that. But I, I do know that it's transmitters, transmission's job to manage system strength. And as, as Audrey mentioned, the, we, we, we've got to reconfigure the transmission system. We've got to rewire it for because the generation's moving. It's moving from where it was to, to different places. Uh, and the control system is changing. And essentially, we need a set of rules that uh, facilitate this change happening in an orderly fashion in a way that is of most benefit to Australia, which doesn't always automatically mean the lowest cost. The most efficient way isn't always lowest cost. Sometimes when you get a higher service, a higher quality of result, you can live with a higher cost. Mm. Hey, look, just two more stories I want to touch on before we wrap up because um, the interview with Audrey went um, for a delightfully long time. Um, you wrote a fantastic piece about uh, China this week. And we're often told um, by one part of politics that um, China is going to beat us because it's got cheap coal and um, that's why it's a very stronger economy. You make the point that it actually doesn't really, and the cost of energy is not very cheap in China anymore, and um, they don't seem to have a lot of the resource anymore either. Well, they've got lots of coal there, but it isn't cheap. And I think everyone in the coal industry knows and understands that it's not cheap. And, and as China, China's coal consumers, the generators and the steel companies, would import a lot more coal from Australia uh, if the Chinese government would, would let them. Uh, but the Chinese government wants to doesn't want to help Australia. Who knows what the Chinese government wants? <laughs> All I know is that uh, coal, coal in China 50, is, is expensive, uh, quite clearly, compared to coal in Australia. And as a result of that, and, and, and one reason why it's uh, expensive is because there's such a demand for it. China's coal generation industry expanded to the point where total coal consumption in China, I think, is about three and a half billion tonnes, an incredible amount, uh, mm. uh, including, uh, and, and, and uh, you can't keep growing at that rate. You just can't dig up the country fast enough. Mm. Mm. One more thing I wanted to mention, I'm not too sure whether you got to have a, um, a look at it at all, the Western Australia Whole of System Plan. We've done a couple of interviews um, about Western Australia recently with Ayimo, um, uh, Dean Shapiro, Shapiro and um, also the WA Energy Minister. Look, a lot of things Chris said, but um, the Whole of System Plan that they've just unveiled has um, left a few people disappointed, um, not particularly ambitious, not a very much a call to action and seem to be more obsessed with um, using sort of film and TV names for their various scenarios, things like Castaway and Double Trouble and uh, Groundhog Day and um, Double... Oh, I can't remember what the last one was, but anyway. Um, no scenario, unlike the AEMO's ISP, no scenario which actually thought that coal would completely leave the system within 20 years. So um, I think people were a bit surprised and just a little bit disappointed with that. And uh, Giles, I haven't had a look at that, so I defer to your your reading of that. I, um, 
I was looking at North Queensland and, and hoping copper string gets up. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've, we've seen a lot of positive things out of West Australia, I guess, uh, up to... Uh, but uh, mm. I, don't know, I, I really don't have any useful comment. So your, your view is it doesn't go far enough? Well, I, I, I think that there's a... Well, my view is, yes, well, I'd, I'd agree with those people who say that. And um, I think there's a couple of issues with the scenarios. It just seems to be all one thing or all the other thing. The, there's there's a couple of low-demand scenarios where rooftop solar P, rooftop PV provides all the new capacity and there's basically no new solar generation and only one small wind farm attached. And then the high-demand scenarios, for some reason, rooftop PV doesn't grow anymore, but large-scale solar and wind is the one that grows with some gas generation. And I, I don't know, look, um, it, it just seems to be sort of one, one extreme to another. And it just seems to me to be a bit of a missed opportunity to have a really thoughtful discussion about um, how things may change and what needs to change, because that seemed to be missing from the actual plan. It was a whole bunch of scenario making without actually sort of saying, okay, the reality is it's probably gonna be this or that, and we need to do X amount. And there didn't seem to be that much there. But um, anyway, look, I think we've um, rattled no, along. No, no, that, that, that's, that, that's the problem with scenarios. In the end, uh, decision makers have to, want to have that's least regrets, choices. So, you know, things that will work under any as many scenarios as possible. But in the end, uh, you have to have a uh, make a judgment about what scenarios are most likely. And this is and the, the science of forecasting uncertain things such as there is, or judgment under uncertainty, is that you you make a forecast and you revise it frequently and make small incremental changes to your forecast as new data and evidence becomes available. So you make a decision, you plan some investments that will work under lots, and then you're prepared to uh, to modify and, and resume that. I mean, the structure in the West Australian market is, is completely hopeless uh, from one point of view, uh, you know, with the government owning them all and splitting into a government-owned retailer and a government-owned uh, network and transmission business. I mean, some people love that, uh, but I, I don't think it's it's great for competition. But it, uh, what I would say is if you've got that competition, you have you've got that structure, you have to make it work for you. Uh, uh, and so you have to force synergy uh, to 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 make the changes that society is demanding because they won't make them on their own. Well, it was interesting. The uh, synergy annual, annual report synergy, of course, is the government-owned generator and retailer, and its annual report came out, and there wasn't much in there actually. But there's one very interesting two paragraphs, or sorry, two very interesting paragraphs, saying about it's going to come up with a new strategy because it knows it knows it cannot exist as it does now, and it's going to have to have a completely different strategy to embrace basically distributed um, PV and battery storage and things like that. So it's going to be fascinating to see what they do come up with. They don't really give any hints as to what that might be, apart from the fact that it's going to be different from what it is now. And I guess one of the conversations we had with Audrey after the um, after the formal um, um, interview was that, you know, the challenge ahead for various generators, retailers and networks and who actually, um, who actually survives into the future. So we shall wait and see. David, I just like thank our sponsors. Oh, I was yes. just about to do Go that. On. Yes, we should thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Uh, we really do appreciate your support, and we hope we'll consume um, our listeners out there support them as well. Thanks to all our listeners, of course. And uh, thank you very much to Audrey Zieberman for speaking to us today. And David, a pleasure once again. Let's talk next week. Let's talk next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.